Tearing Down Walls, a Sunshine Life podcast with your host, Sylvia Cunningham. Welcome to Tearing Down Walls, Sunshine Live's monthly transatlantic show. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Today calls for a celebration. 12 months ago, our very first episode of Tearing Down Walls aired on Sunshine Live, so we just have to start this show off with a toast. And here to help me do that is our show's co-producer, Monica Müller-Kroll. Hey, Monica. Hi, Sylvia. So we aren't physically in the same place, but we both had to bring something to toast with. What did you bring? <laughs> surprise, surprise. I got some cold beer. <laughs> We're on the same page because I have beer as well. Uh, we have to do a toast. Okay. Ready? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cheers and Cheers. Uh, congratulations. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. We, of course, want to thank our listeners and remind you, please get in touch with us. If you have questions or comments, we're always happy to hear from you. You can contact us at tdw at sunshine-live.de. But before Monica and I really start celebrating, we're taking a look back at our first 11 episodes and highlighting some of our favorite interviews. In the past 12 months, we've talked about the war in Ukraine, LGBTQ rights, identity, building resilience amid crisis, and much more. But way back in our very first show, we delved into the experience of American and German exchange students in each other's home countries. We talked with several Fulbright grantees, including American Alyssa Kolb, who at the time was a PhD candidate studying in Munich, and Sophia Dash, a master's student in Berlin who had spent a year at Brown University in Rhode Island in the States. Here is an excerpt from that very first interview. Sunshine Life, tearing down walls. So, Alyssa, let me start with you. You came to Germany amid a pandemic, which can't have been easy, and you have quite an intriguing dissertation topic. Tell me what initially sparked your interest in Germany. Actually, my interest uh, started with my grandmother. She is from the Stuttgart area, Kirchheim Untertech. So uh, as I was growing up, you know, she was always telling me about her hometown and uh, how beautiful it was and how great. And I always wanted to see it. Um, so in college, as an undergrad, I actually got the opportunity to go to Germany on a study abroad trip. And that kind of sparked my love for Germany. And I've always loved studying history. So I decided, oh, yeah, I'm going to do German history. That's what I want to do with the rest of my life. Um, but I would have never expected studying what I study now. <laughs> Wait, yeah, tell us what that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My research investigates how 19th century Bavarians' understandings of death, burial, and the corpse uh, changed with the implementation of the morgue, or what we call the Leichenhaus in Germany. Um, so, uh, yeah, I never expected to be studying death and the morgue. <laughs> Um, my topic kind of found me. Um, I was in the archives in 2019 in Munich, and I was studying something completely different. I was studying uh, folk medicine in Bavaria, and I came across this file of um, proposals for morgues. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. And I ended up presenting it to an audience and they were much more interested in the morgue part of the presentation than the folk medicine part. And sometimes you have to listen to your audience. Um, what aspects of your research are really interesting to them? So that kind of pushed me to look into the topic further. And now that's what I do. 
And you seem to have a sense of humor about it, too. Oh, yes. One of the chapters in my dissertation is titled Saved by the Bell, because um, they used to tie bells to corpses uh, to alert the morgue attendants if someone would come back to life. So I always joke with my audiences that that's where the TV show title came from. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, Sophia, let me come to you. You were a Fulbright Scholar at Brown University from 2019 to 2020. Your year abroad, of course, was interrupted due to the pandemic. But why did you want to study in the U.S. in the first place? I actually like my main reason for the U.S. was just because of the like exceptional education system that we have, where I was like, okay, no, I have to go there. The courses sound so great. And what the university has to offer is just like amazing. So, yeah. And what were some of your first impressions? I mean, what were some of the things that surprised you when you finally arrived as a student on an American campus? One of the things that like surprised me was also just like how like nice everyone was like in the campus. I had to like run from like every office to like the other office. And I feel like this is always like a stressful experience. But like at this campus, everyone was just like so nice and <laughs> super friendly. So that was like something at the very beginning. But um, yeah, I mean, also like 24 hour opening times at libraries was, was something which I was like super surprised by and which was like a crazy concept for me. And yeah, I mean, also like free food. There was like free food everywhere. That was also like a very cool thing. Like so much free um, pizza and um, yeah, just like <laughs> tons of different stuff. Uh, did you experience the free t-shirts, Sophia? Of course, of course, I um, <laughs> got a free t-shirt, um, a free Brown University t-shirt. I still have it. I'm sleeping in it, like, at the moment, <laughs> actually. It's my sleeping t-shirt. And, I mean, this is, like, another thing that, like, at the campus, so many people are, like, running around with university t-shirts, which is just not the same thing in Germany. Because Also because I feel like the standing of the university is a different one. Like life is like very centered around university in the US and in Germany, it's more like, yeah, you learn in the university, but you have like a whole life outside of university. And yeah, so there's that's like a huge difference. <laughs> I love that. I'm so glad you asked about that, Alyssa, because that is such a phenomenon that you, you just have this drawer full of t-shirts by the end of your university experience in the US. But on the other side, Alyssa, what are some of the things that you've observed here in Germany about students while you've um, been in Munich? Uh, German students are actually genuinely interested in what you're researching and why you're there. And they ask so many questions. And I, I found that so refreshing. And it may just be because I've been locked up for the past. <laughs> for the pandemic for the past year, like everyone else. But it was so great to be able to talk and get different perspectives from people who are actually from here. And, you know, the first question I always get when I speak to a German student is, why are you studying Bavaria? <laughs> like, why would you why would you come from the States to study Bavaria? And it's funny because I can flip the question on them because most of them are studying some sort of science or medicine in the States. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's been, a, it's been a fun experience, but yeah, I haven't had a free t-shirt from LMU at Munich yet. So you will not get one. <laughs> I will not get one. <laughs> <laughs> that was Alyssa Kolb and Sophia Dash from our very first interview on tearing down walls. So no free t-shirts at German universities, but that wasn't the only difference between studying in the U.S. and studying in Germany. 
You can find the full interview on our very first episode in your podcast feed. And if you haven't yet, don't forget to hit subscribe. Tearing Down Walls, a Sunshine Life podcast. In honor of our first year anniversary, we went through our archive and picked out some of our favorite interviews. This next one is from our show on identity. It features Stephen Kaplan, the president of the University of New Haven, which is home to our partner radio station WNHU. I first asked President Kaplan about how his connection to Germany came about. So as an undergraduate at UCLA, I was studying European cultural and intellectual history with an emphasis on the German-speaking countries. Uh, I didn't speak German. I was very interested in a lot of the 19th and 18th century um, cultural icons, Goethe, Mozart, and so forth. Um, But my real relationship with Germany outside of as a student, started during that time in my senior year at UCLA when I picked up a beautiful German woman and her American boyfriend hitchhiking across the United States. And when I encountered them, they had already completed half their journey across the country and were up in Big Sur where I had gone up for a weekend. So I picked up my now wife 46 years ago hitchhiking in Big Sur We spent an evening together. The next day, unexpectedly, they were there hitchhiking again. So I drove them to Los Angeles and spent, they spent five weeks there working um, to make some funds to continue their trip. And that was in August when they left. And in that spring, I went over to Germany and in many ways didn't leave for the next 14 years. Wow. Okay. Very romantic. But so, but there wasn't a boyfriend before and you took the place of him on the road trip. I, <laughs> I Not gather. on the road trip. They, they weren't getting along too well at, at the time I picked them up, but they still were together when I went over to Germany and then eventually he moved out and I moved in. <laughs> well, a road trip is definitely when you find out what's working and what's not working. So that's great that you met though. So you mentioned Goethe, you mentioned Mozart. Was art an entry point for you then when you actually moved to Germany? Absolutely. Art, literature, cultural studies. I mean, culture, well, I'm extremely interested in nature and we've done a lot of incredible trips to places like Africa, South America. What interests me the most in my travels are the cultural encounters you can have and mainly culture, certainly in terms of people, but mainly in terms of art, literature, music. So yeah, that was a that was a big entry point to Germany because I fell in love with Germany through its culture. And you've even written a book analyzing translations of poetry by Rainer Maria Rilke. Can you describe how his poetry has moved you? Yeah, Rilke is, is kind of the poet's poet. So I was studying in, in Tübingen, where I spent almost fourteen years. German literature, German philosophy, uh, with an emphasis really on the so-called canon, which was Goethe, Schiller, and so forth. And then I tripped over Rilke, and he's, like I said, he's the poet's poet. You know, it's it's poetry for the sake of poetry. It's it's, And, and I don't just mean that lyrically, but also in, in intellectually. He takes you off into aspects of the meaning of life that are, are pretty powerful. Now I'd like to majorly put you on the spot. Is there any short poem or quote you have that you could share with us? Yeah, you know, his, his most difficult, but also for me, his most interesting poems are his elegies. But the most accessible are the Neue Gedichte. And 
there's one in there about it. It's called the Archaic Torso of Apollo, about a statue in the Louvre. And it's just a torso, and Rilke describes it in really powerful terms. And then the closing line is, Denda ist keine Stelle, die dich nicht sieht. Du musst dein Leben ändern. So you've got a, a, a torso, right? No head, no eyes, that can see everything about you and is forcing you to change your life. And that, that to me is, encompasses not just his poetry, but art in general, that art should force us to constantly reevaluate who we are, what we do, and what our place in the world is. And so I would say that's one of my favorite passages. There, there are many others. That was Stephen Kaplan, the president of the University of New Haven, from our show on identity. On today's episode, we're revisiting some of our favorite interviews since we launched in June of 2021. Over the past 11 episodes, we've covered topics like LGBTQ rights and what role social media plays in our elections. Last November, around what is both Thanksgiving and Native American Heritage Month in the United States, we talked about how we grapple with our colonial pasts on both sides of the Atlantic. I spoke with Naita Hishono, the executive director of the Namibia Institute for Democracy, and Renee Goki, a citizen of the Eastern Shawnee Tribe of Oklahoma and teacher services coordinator at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of the American Indian. Let's take a listen. Tearing Down Walls, our transatlantic show on Sunshine Life. So, Renee, in your role at the Smithsonian, you have offered tips on how teachers can move beyond overused and oversimplified curriculums for teaching about Native cultures. Can you share more about your approach to re-educating students and teachers? So often around this time of the year, it's both Native American Heritage Month in the United States and one of our important national holidays, Thanksgiving. So people often are teaching about Native Americans at this time with, you know, simple crafts, maybe not even um, mentioning the tribal names of the diverse cultures that are still here today and in the Americas, but talking more generally about Native Americans and often teaching more of a trilogy approach, which is how I often have coined it. And it's food, clothing, and shelter, you know, and often, about Native people in the past. So these are kind of simplified and narrow ways of teaching about Native people. And so we hope teachers and parents will too, is start to talk about the immense contributions of Native people in science, for example, in agriculture and through water irrigation, allowing Indigenous peoples to thrive in the Americas for thousands of years before contact and in uh, rich agricultural traditions that contribute about 60% of the world's foods today actually rely on indigenous food science and things like technology, suspension bridges, and certain aspects of medicine, and even government. The great law of peace that originates with the Haudenosaunee or Six Nations people helped influence our own American government. And that law requires and declares a basic respect for the rights of all people. So these are just some of the types of contributions that we hope teachers will share with our students. Nida, can you give us some insight into the way in which German colonialism is taught in the classroom? The topic of colonialism and reparations and dealing with the history, although it is an issue that's in the German curriculum, not a lot of teachers deal with it because it's not mandatory. So the way they handle this is to their best 
ability. For a long time, Germany hasn't uh, seen their colonial history as an important issue to include. And for the longest time, it was a discussion if what happened in Namibia was a genocide or not. So for Germans, their colonial history, dealing with it in their textbooks and in the schools, it's a very recent topic. And because it's a very new and fresh and recent topics, the different methodologies and tools to use is only now being discussed. We are very much in the beginning stages and therefore it's a very undervalued and under-discussed topic. Renee, do you see a parallel in that? Do you feel that it's a more recent development um, that American history is now being taught with this correct context? We are seeing, um, you know, a lot of gaps in the curriculum. And as Nida said, you know, it's not necessarily mandatory. Um, There are some states that are having mandatory curriculum that teaches about indigenous histories more accurately, but nationally we're not there. There's still much work to be done. There's a lot of stories to tell. And when she mentioned Namibia and asking if is it genocide or not, we have a new material that is around the California gold rush. And it is an inquiry that asks that same question of um, indigenous peoples in California and the colonists coming in in order to seek gold. So that's an interesting connection and that should launch in the in the coming months. Nida, can you talk a little bit about Namibians awareness and understanding of German colonialism versus the German understanding and maybe give us some context about how it's talked about in Namibia and the impacts that are still seen today? Yes, in Namibia, the German history and the colonialism is omnipresent. It's everywhere around us. It's in the architecture, it's in the economic empowerment of the German community. They are one of the most powerful economic groups in Namibia. It's in the street names, it's in the schools. The German private schools are one of the most sought after schools. And Namibians know of Germany, but Germans don't know about Namibia. So it's this very skewed power relation between Germany and Namibia. German colonial history is taught in the Namibian books, but for young people, it's a chapter in their history but it's not something they deal with the whole time unless your family is a descendant of those people that were directly affected by the genocide. For the Ovaherero San and Nama community, the genocide is something that is talked about, passed on in oral history, passed on in the families, the stories, and people know about it. And they deal with it and they've been lobbying and advocating for Germany to acknowledge the genocide and uh, lobbying for Germany to pay reparations or conduct restitution or for German farmers to deal with the history because 1% of the country, the white population sits on 70% of the land. So it's present in Namibia. People know about it, they read about it, but it's very much a Namibian issue more than it's a German issue so far. You just heard Naita Hishono and Renee Goki from our show on contextualizing our colonial pasts in Germany and the United States. You can listen to the whole show in your podcast feed. Now, while we're walking down memory lane and picking some of our favorite stories from the past year, we, of course, had to include our show on love. For that episode, we couldn't resist talking to the father of the love parade, Berliner Dr. Mata. Here's a little excerpt from our talk. 
So love is, of course, central to what you do. You started the mother of all techno parades, the Love Parade, in what was West Berlin in July 1989. So you're all about love, right? More or less, I would say I'm into everything what is like uh, kicking me in a way. Yeah? Like I was thinking about what do I love and what do I like to do and what do I want from life? Yeah? Like uh, all the questions I have, yeah? because uh, in the early 80s, I stopped working for a boss. So I get um, independent in a way and do my own business in my way. And from all that, it came one to another to... Uh, find out what I really, 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 really want from this life I experience right now. That was DJ Dr. Mata. And actually, just at the beginning of June, Dr. Mata had a huge party in Berlin to catch up on two birthday celebrations that had to be canceled due to the pandemic. He's also planning a Rave the Planet parade in Berlin on July 9th. It's a political demonstration to recognize and protect electronic music culture, safeguard clubs, and more. Now, on that same show about love, we talked about how the pandemic had added a whole new layer to dating and relationships. I caught up with friends of mine in Munich, Julie and Kevin. They're both Americans. They met in Baltimore in 2017. But then there came a job offer for Julie, and the job was in Europe, which put a wrench into things. Let's take a listen. I think the, the main issue was if I was moving to Europe or not. That was the biggest issue. Is Kevin moving to Europe and when? <laughs> so. And figuring out like, okay, is this actually like what we want to do and kind of continue like our relationship further and stuff. Um, I think we were just at the point of our relationship where we met in 2017. I moved in 2019, but I knew I was going to be moving for about a year before then. So long enough to have feelings for each other and be in a serious partnership, but not long enough to say, at least for either of us to say, you know, I know you're the person I want to be with forever. So, and then I moved. So it was kind of navigating what we're doing when COVID hit, which made it harder. So... Well, spoiler, they stayed together and they figured out how to make a long-distance relationship work, though sometimes it was a bit stressful. I don't know. We were talking about, and for me, this is what we had a little bit of a fight over looking back now because we were talking about, you know, are we getting engaged or, you know, what are we doing? What's going on? And Kevin said, well, I like you and I like hanging out. And I was so mad. I was like, we were talking about getting married. You can't say I like you and I like hanging out. But <laughs> like, that's kind of true. I mean, we like each other a lot and we like hanging out. <laughs> so I think, you know, during this time when we were apart, it was like we managed to get through because like we just enjoyed each other's company. So like messaging was easy, like video calls were easy, doing, you know, little virtual dinner dates or things. Like we just really enjoy the time we did get to spend together. So I like you and I like hanging out. And now now we work <laughs> And now I can laugh about now, that you said that. Now we so. work right next to each other. And now we work so. at a desk, you know, literally next to each other all day long. <laughs> so Which is the complete opposite. <laughs> That was an excerpt from our show on love. You can check out the full episode in your podcast feed. Tearing Down Walls is a co-production of Sunshine Life and college radio station WNHU. 88.7 FM out of West Haven. June marks Pride Month in the U.S. 
Last year, we talked about LGBTQ rights on both sides of the Atlantic and how far there's still to go on the road to equality. I talked with Felicia Rolechki, a Berlin-based trans activist, and Khalid Crowder, a graduate from the University of New Haven and former DJ at our partner station, WNHU. At the time, Kalik was working as a community curator for Snapchat. I asked him what he thought was missing in the way LGBTQ topics are communicated in the U.S. I think that LGBT issues, you know, are hit different in different cultures. I think that there is a lack of, you know, nuance. We're still learning a lot of new things like, you know, non-binary and genderqueer. I also think there's just a lack of empathy. You know, sometimes it feels like, there are certain politicians, you know, this this kind of push to kind of keep this kind of rigid, archaic gender roles, even in 2021. So I, w- I would say that's a, you know, big disconnect. Going off of what Kalik said, Felicia, what would you say in terms of Germany's progress? I mean, for example, in the U.S., it's become increasingly common for people to put their pronouns in their email signatures or on social media. Do you think that there is increasing acceptance here as well? Um, when we think of like having pronouns in your email signatures and stuff like that. It's something that's definitely more and more common in Germany. We have a very large discussion on on the degendering of language that is currently like very present in the in, in the mainstream discourse. Because German in itself is a very gendered language and the discussion to reduce that and the way we speak every day is like very present and very up to date. So I do see some progress there. I consider it to be a bit slower than what we see in the US and a bit less volatile at times. So, Kalik, you wrote an essay last summer for NBC Think where you talked about how you had to do twice as much as other people. And there was one line that really stuck out with me. You said, quote, I not only have Asperger's, but I'm also African-American, openly gay and plus size in a society designed to privilege white people, heterosexual people and thinner people. And you talked about the need to code switch. Can you explain what you mean by that? Um, code switching is basically like making yourself palatable to other people, you know, when you're in spaces with other people who have more privilege than you or um, it's a way to survive. And code switching is just universal, like how I talk with my mom is different from when I talk to my friends or how I talk to my professors. As black people, we're kind of, we have no choice but to be actors and kind of have to play pretend or be a certain version of themselves to make other people comfortable. So we're not getting fired or reprimanded at school or or things of that nature because you know, our role isn't, you know, fully embracing of our differences. I I want to bring you in, Felicia, as well, and talk about your experience facing discrimination. As you know, some parties in the German parliament have been pushing here to reform the so-called transsexual law. Can you describe your experience with this law? Yeah, so the way this, this law works at the moment in Germany is that in order to change your legal name and gender marker, you have to go through several consultations with psychologists who write extensive reports and try to determine your gender by personality tests and sometimes even IQ tests and in conversations where you have to lay bare essentially all aspects of your sexuality, of your sexual behaviors and identity to a degree that's just like extremely uncomfortable and not right. And in addition to that, you have to pay all all of this process. It costs between 500 and 8,000 euros for me personally, experience was really bad. Had between these two consultations, one of them was really, really horrible with a person that not just asked a lot of very invasive questions, but then in this report also like consistently misgendered me and wrote things about my life that just weren't true because 
she didn't care all that much about writing a correct report and stuff like that. Had a very bad experience. And in the end, that whole process took me like two years. And this law is about four decades old. What do you think of the laws that the Green Party and Free Democrats wanted to replace it with? Um, So these so-called self-ID laws would have been really great. They would have essentially eliminated the entire process and made changing your legal name and gender marker in your passport something that's based on your self-identification, just where you put forward the information and then this data is changed. And it would be handled the same way many other European countries handle it and would have been a great improvement to this very old and really awful law. That was Felicia Roletsky and Khalid Crowder. And since that interview in July 2021, of course, a lot has happened in German politics, including an election, a change in leadership and government, and the fact that the parties that had been pushing for that reform are now in power. And leading politicians say they intend to abolish that so-called transsexual law, but it hasn't happened yet. We'll be following that story in upcoming episodes of Tearing Down Walls. One topic that's dominated our thoughts this year is Russia's invasion into Ukraine. On March 23rd, we spoke with Olena Lennon, an adjunct professor of political science and national security at the University of New Haven. Let's take a listen. So here in Germany and across Europe, the Russian invasion is top of everyone's mind, with millions of Ukrainians displaced to EU countries and mass demonstrations in many European cities. How do you feel the American public is engaging in this issue? Well, uh, it's very similar. You know, we're all in shock and war coverage has definitely dominated the headlines here in the United States as well, from national to local news. You know, we have seen a lot of pro-Ukraine rallies engulfing the entire world, really, and they have become a daily occurrence here in the United States as well. We also have a quite active and sizable Ukrainian diaspora here on East Coast. Uh, you know, between uh, New York, uh, Washington, D.C., Boston. Um, there are a lot of students here, too, that are organizing uh, these rallies. So it's been quite impressive and overwhelming in many ways, too, as, as people are responding to this, to, to this horror that's unraveling in Ukraine. And you're not only an expert and professor in this field, but you're also from Ukraine. What kinds of questions are your students at the University of New Haven asking you? You know, my students never cease to impress me. I've had really deep conversations with my students who are, you know, 19, 20, uh, 22 year olds uh, who are genuinely interested in what this war will mean uh, for not just for the United States, but for the people of Ukraine and, and for the world. Because on the most basic level in my conversations with the students, I see that they're trying to grapple with this idea why the value of human life changes depending on uh, you know, where the artificial border is constructed. So, for example, you know, NATO countries are protected by Article 5, obviously. So the, the message from the Biden administration, from the United States in general, is that uh, we are committed to defending uh, NATO allies. And then as, as soon as uh, this conflict, this war spills over to a NATO territory, then we will defend human life on the NATO territory. But human life outside NATO borderline sort of matters less. And I think that, um, you know, to political scientists, uh, you know, these are perhaps norms that we discuss all the time in terms of the importance of alliances and, and sovereign borders. But to college students and aspiring professionals, 
uh, some of these ideas are, are really controversial in, in how we treat human life and how these artificially constructed borders and alliances determine the value of human life. And uh, to me, I've just been really inspired and impacted and, and I've been questioning a lot of my own thinking based on how um, you know young Americans respond to this in the most humane ways uh, that I, I didn't even you know expect myself. And one person I'm sure that your students have become very familiar with now is Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. And he, of course, has been addressing parliaments and governments of several nations over the past few weeks, including the German Bundestag and, of course, the U.S. Congress. Is there something in his rhetoric or a certain message that has stood out to you? Right. I even played that address in in my classes uh, because I, I thought it was really important for them to see it. Um, but what, what impressed me about Zelensky's address to U.S. Congress was um, how effectively he invoked images of Pearl Harbor and 9-11 that definitely resonate with the American public and activate those images of horror and uh, terror that countries can be subjected to. But, you know, it, even though it was anticipated that Zelensky would, you know, use some of the more direct references to the times when the United States was under attack. But I think what resonated with me the most um, in Zelensky's speech is, to me, those references to Pearl Harbor and 9-11 also signaled international solidarity, because uh, the United States you know, tried to stay out of World War II until they were attacked on their soil, and then they didn't have a choice but intervene. And 9-11 was also one of the more tragic attacks on the, on the U.S. soil. But it also led to the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq that the United States did not fight alone. Um, you know, we shouldn't forget that the campaign uh, on decapitating Saddam Hussein's regime was also a multinational coalition of forces, not a NATO force. Some of the uh, members of the multinational coalition that fought alongside the United States were NATO members and some were not. But the bottom line here is that you know, when the United States was attacked on its soil and they responded in the way that they you know, saw appropriate, they did not fight their wars alone outside their sovereign territories, uh, whether it was Afghanistan or Iraq, because the, uh, the situation was not normal anymore. So some of the, you know, when these crises happen, um, you know, sometimes as we saw, countries should be willing to, to change their rules and, and to, to break some of the uh, bureaucratic procedures uh, to respond to a crisis situation appropriately in kind and, and with, the, um, with the right level of in- intensity. That was Olena Lennon, an adjunct professor of political science and national security at the University of New Haven, talking with Tearing Down Walls on March 23rd. All the excerpts you heard in today's show are from our first 11 episodes of Tearing Down Walls. You can find them in your podcast feed, and don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. That does it for us on our first anniversary episode of Tearing Down Walls. This show is produced by Monica Muller-Kroll and me, Sylvia Cunningham. Thanks again for a great first year. We'll see you here next month.